Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, uh, it's my privilege to introduce to you Craig. So let me give you a little background. Um, you have seen his work before because uh, annually we kind of say to our elders and board and staff, you know, do you have ideas for sermon series? And Craig is our faithful guy who every year writes us three or four ideas about series, and they're always uh, very intellectually based. So in the last few years, if we've done anything smart, <laughs> the likelihood is Craig was behind that and uh, referring us. He's a graduate of Fuller Seminary, and somewhere along the way, uh, his life turned towards more life as a lay leader, and he's been a key leader in our congregation. And so when he began to talk about this little series about what it means to come out of the dominion of darkness and to live in the kingdom of light. Uh, I just asked if he would intro it, and so uh, he's going to share that with you. It's rich, rich stuff, and so uh, uh, as you can imagine, you know, this is a little nerve-wracking to be in all these places, so uh, would you help make him feel welcome as he shares with us? feedback stopped? Can you hear me okay? I said this at the first service. Believe me, I'm as disappointed that Dave's not preaching this morning as you are. (laughs) And I really mean that. Um, The good news is Dave and Colton will be handling the next three weeks, and they'll be taking us through the book of the Bible known as Philemon. And it's funny, to call Philemon a book seems a little bit odd. It's actually a short personal letter from the Apostle Paul to a businessman named Philemon in Colossae. And who we will see is the host of a new small group or small house church. Think 12 to 20 people that are meeting in his living room in the small city of Colossae. So do you expect that letter that Paul writes to Philemon to be an encouraging note about hosting that small group? But that's not the case, not the case at all. The letter is actually about a slave, a runaway slave that belongs to Philemon. Yes, it was very uncomfortable in the first service as well. It is an uncomfortable subject, that's why Dave and Colton will be taking us through Philemon. (laughs) My job, our job this morning, is to get some badly needed context for that letter. Because when we get through that letter, it's so rich in its payoff. So we need context. And for that, we're really fortunate. The context is completely clear. It's the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And it sounds, it sounds funny, but Paul wrote two letters at the same time, and they went to the same place, Philemon's house. The letter to the Colossians is just the small group meeting in Philemon's living room. Does that help a little bit? I've always thought, why aren't these right next to each other in the Bible? That would be so helpful for us lay people. So 
Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. And at the same time, the letter to the personal letter to Philemon is delivered at the same time. And what we'll find is the letter to Philemon is meant as an extension or an application, a specific application of the letter to the Colossians. So we're ready to do work together in, Col in Colossians this morning? Okay. And I want to be clear. Are we getting feedback this way? I just take uh, stage direction from Dave. I want to be clear. I'm not here to preach to you this morning. I'm going to leave that to the professionals. Still getting feedback. Since this letter is to a small group, I'm proposing that we act as a small group. We're bigger than that little group of 12 or 20 sitting in Philemon's living room. But if we act like a small group together, let's try and hear the letter from Paul to them as, as they heard it. And I, I'm going to tell you right up front, it's a little challenging. So hang in there. There's a great payoff for it. Let's try and understand what Paul was saying to them and then maybe to us. So where are we and when are we in history? From Acts 19, we know Paul spent at least two years in an intense preaching and teaching ministry in Ephesus. It would be great if Ephesus popped up on there, but it's not going to. This is your electronic map today, my right arm. On the west coast of what is now uh, Turkey, port city of Ephesus, and it's very important. It's a sprawling, thriving city of trade. Two to three days journey east of that is the small town of Colossae. And I say small town, Colossae's better days are in its rearview mirror. It's definitely a city in decline. So it's a podunk town. And I just love that Paul writes this letter, that's a book of the Bible now, to a podunk town, to a very small group of people meeting in someone's living room. It's important, not because of its numbers. Um, now, Philemon was apparently a man of some means, a businessman. How he was introduced to Paul in the first place, he would go to Ephesus on business, and during that two-year ministry, he encountered Paul. We even know from later that Paul himself led Philemon personally to faith. On returning home, likely, Philemon shared his faith with family, perhaps friends, enough that a small cell of people started meeting in his house. Then a church planter um, named Epaphras, if you've heard his name elsewhere in the New Testament, another person from Paul's circle came and visited them and did some teaching and reported back to Paul. Very encouraging news. And it's this that's the catalyst for Paul to send them this letter. What's great is there's so much detail around this letter. We even know the names of the two men who delivered these two letters to Philemon's house at the same time. Tychicus and another gentleman with the odd Greek name Onesimus. Now, earlier this year, I took an online class with a British professor, and he said Onesimus, and I think that gives a little more dignity to the name. So if I say it again, 
I'm going with the British pronunciation. Now, Paul's goal for this letter, they're definite and they're threefold. The first, he's passionate for them to grasp the grand scope of what Jesus has done. And through all this, think of that word grand because the work of Jesus is grand. Second, he wants the grand work that Jesus has done to come right down into their daily lives. He wants the ramifications of what Jesus done to be right into their day-to-day -day life. So much so that at the end of the letter, he pivots to a specific application and he chooses a blind spot. He chooses a blind spot as the application that he wants to teach them about. So remember that, we'll get to that last. You okay so far? Uh, on the way over here, Dave was kind of laughing. I don't tell jokes. There's no fluff. I'm not funny. It's all Bible study today. All right? <laughs> I don't know how Dave gets up here and can just talk for a while. No notes or anything. It's amazing. Paul starts his letter as we would expect. To this new group of small believers, he sends a greeting a heartfelt greeting. He loves them. And he even lets them know how he's praying for them. But then very quickly, the tone changes. In Colossians 1, we're in the first chapter, 15 through 20, he gives them a distilled recitation of all of Jesus' work, going back to the beginning of creation. This is that grand scope he wants to convey right away. And he does it in just six verses. Now, Paul's not the only one in the New Testament to revert back to Genesis in talking about the scope of Jesus' work. The Gospel of John. John doesn't start his gospel. It's not adequate as a beginning for when he met Jesus as a fisherman. And he doesn't start with Jesus' upbringing. He doesn't even start with his birth. The right place for the Gospel of John is back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul is like that in these six verses to this new group of believers. Now, I said poetic, distilled recitation. I don't want you to be thrown that these six verses don't appear in our NIV Bibles today in a poetic format. And just so you know, I didn't make this up because that would be scary. If we were to look at the second chapter of Philippians, for instance, if we were studying that letter this morning, we'd see a clear example of Paul inserting a poem into a letter. That poem is that gorgeous poem about the humility of Jesus. Here, oh, and he conveys so much material in just those short verses that you see why, ah, a poem is the right delivery device for that much information. Now, the reason those verses appear in Philippians in their poetic form is relatively recent, and I mean in my lifetime. That probably sounds ancient to the first two rows, <laughs> except Herb. Um, it was theologians like Dr. Ralph Winter and Dr. Ralph Winter, Dr. Ralph Martin, 
giving Ralph Winter way too much credit. <laughs> Back in the 1960s that argued for that and that's why that poetic format is in Philippians. Well, for these six verses, it's N.T. Wright, the world-renowned theologian, who gives us these six verses in their poetic intended format. And it's so helpful, I think, for us lay people to read it in that format. The theme is clear of the poem, the supremacy of Jesus. It didn't appear on the screen in the last service either. I'll read it for you. He is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in the heavens and here on earth, things we can see and things we cannot, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers, all were created both for him and through him. And he is ahead prior to all else, and in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme, the head over the body the church. He's the start of it all, firstborn from the realms of the dead, so in all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to dwell, and through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, yes, things on the earth, and also the things in the heavens. That first stanza, again, we go back to creation in Genesis 1, like John's opening for his gospel, showing Jesus as the image of God through whom all creation has been made in its original purposes. Moses and the people of the Exodus, from whom we get Genesis 1, were so changed as a people by the actions of God Almighty in their midst that they literally rewrote history in light of what they came to know of God, the one and only God acting so powerfully. And the one thing they knew for sure, God not only created his creation, created the cosmos intentionally, but that he declared it as good. And there's no way to miss that in the story, for he repeats that phrase through creation, it is good, it is good. And it culminates with, it is very good. Paul stressing here, it's Jesus who was there, the fullness of God through whom all was created. Grand. The third stanza, parallel to the first, showing Jesus again front to center as the fullness of God again in the redemption story, which is clearly a recreation story restoring all that had been declared good in the original creation by God himself and moving forward to all eternity. Now, theologians have coined these verses. Jesus made it all. Jesus paid for it all. But what's so helpful about the poetic format, What's so helpful to remember that small group meeting in Philemon's living room, hearing this grand story, is that middle stanza. They know that's their place in the story. That's where they are. This is where the recipients of the letter are living in the middle of these two grand epics, these two grand works of Jesus, creation 
redemption, which is recreation. And they're not alone. Who's with them? Jesus himself is with them. They too are in a kind of second exodus. And Jesus himself is tabernacled among them. Not in a tent or a temple or a building, but in the actual group, a small group of new believers themselves. And all the other new groups, new groups of believers they're hearing about that are spread around and growing. And they're experiencing something new, the spirit of Jesus with them, giving them fellowship with God like they've never experienced and fellowship with one another. I said grand. He wants them to get the sweet taste of the memory of creation and the foretaste of their eternal destiny. So he wants them to grasp this grand scope, even though they feel insignificant down in the middle between the two. They're not. Jesus himself is with them. While they live their day-to-day lives, which includes work, love, and suffering, actual suffering, and Jesus is with them there. This is heavy. This is heavy stuff. Paul is giving them so much to chew on. And remember, they're not a real mature group yet. You would expect Paul would send them more of a, hey, welcome to the faith, good luck, everything's going to turn out great. But this feels more like emergency rations sent to help them survive. Why do you think Paul gives them such a densely packed bit of theological material to chew on? That's a great question. I came up with it, and I thought it was a great question. (laughs) Why? It's because we're missing what's at stake for them in their day-to-day lives. Paul's not missing it. He knows what's at stake. He knows they're afraid. And they certainly know they're afraid. What are they afraid of? So we need to do a bit of cultural understanding, understanding their time. Is that okay? So, you're in the Roman Empire. It's the first century A.D., And the Roman Empire kind of wraps around the whole Mediterranean at this point. They're certainly in it. Religion is not a private matter in any way. Religion is a public responsibility that you share with your community. And you practice with your community in your community. There's two layers of public religious responsibility for everyone. The first, in your town, your village, your local area, you had to worship with everyone else the local gods and goddesses and deities that were thought to reside in your area. You needed to do that. It was your job, your civil job to do that because you needed to appease those deities for such things as Good fortune, good weather, good crops, healthy children. So generally, good fortune versus calamity. If those entities 
were not appeased, bad things would happen. What's guaranteed to happen? That's right. Bad things happen. But in their minds, those bad things were interpreted as miscues, mistakes. Somebody had blown it in their public worship of those deities, and they had to be blamed. They had to be blamed. So, if you now have a small group of people who aren't participating in that public worship, instead they're meeting in Philemon's living room, everyone's going to know about it. It's a small town. Everybody knows everyone's business. And they're going to get blamed, and there's going to be immediate consequences. But it's not just local peer pressure. The second layer was the ultimate governing authority of the Roman Empire itself, which required public worship in the fastest growing religion at the time Paul wrote this letter. Any guesses to what that was? There was no guesses in the first service either. The cult of Caesar. The human Caesar was now elevated to the point where he was a deity and demanded to be worshipped as a deity. His title? Lord and Savior. Now when you read stuff from Paul and you see him declare Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's where that title comes from. It's interesting. So, the risk of a group of new believers to be referring to a dead Jew from Nazareth as Lord and Savior is their very lives. If you didn't show up for that public worship, it was considered vulgar, atheistic, and downright unpatriotic. And you were going to be punishment. You were going to be punished. And the punishment was severe. You could be killed for this. So, do we get the risks, the fear they lived in for having this new faith and meeting with this new group in Philemon's living room? Now we see, okay, Paul's letter to them makes sense. It's appropriately weighty, substantial, and life-giving. The density of it makes sense. Their situation is dire. Just before that, just before those dense six verses, in Colossians 1.13, Paul emphatically states, You've been brought out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. What he's saying is, this isn't a new religious experience. They've grown up with religion. They've known religion all their lives. This is not another flavor of religion. This is a regime change. This is their citizenship has changed. They've been brought out of a kingdom, a false kingdom, and he calls it a dominion of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of God. They are brand new citizens in the kingdom of God. The scope of Jesus' work is grand, and what has happened to them is grand. Now, Paul continues. He says in Colossians 2.12, they're dead and buried to their old life and raised again to their new eternal life in his kingdom. He keeps on with this point. It's not just a good story. What's happened to them is an actual event in reality, changing their existence 
from its citizenship in the dominion of darkness, a damned state, to its wonderful state of fellowship with God and each other in the kingdom of God. Paul, throughout the letter, is passionate in wanting them to grasp the scope of Jesus' work. It's none other than a return to the original creation story, written of so poetically, so wonderful when we recognize the poems and the scriptures and see their depth, where God intentionally in the original creation story creates the cosmos and declares it as good, fills it with life, and creates image, uh, humans in his image. Here they get a role. This is a role deemed by God for them as stewards of this good creation. That's what image bearer of God's status is. And it's threefold. They, can, they are implementing God's wisdom in caring for this good creation. God certainly wants them to thrive within it. And he also wants them to reflect back to God the praises of it. Jesus has not only redeemed his good creation, he's redeemed the role of humans within it, back to its original status of image of God-bearing status. So think of it. These small town dwellers of Colossae have been given back God's original intention for them as humans from the beginning, the very intention of creation itself to be people created in the image of God from their daily lives to the present, in the present to all eternity. Now, if you go home and read Colossians, there's lots of teaching, moral teaching. If you put it into this framework, it simply falls into place because of the, what Jesus has accomplished in this redemptive recreation and their very roles as humans redeemed by Jesus, then how to treat one another and treat themselves is appropriate. Not to minimize them, but to maximize their humanity, maximize their roles as image bearers within creation. It's amazing. Often I've sat in my living room in my dad chair, just so floored by how good the good news is. Amen. So, we've, we get that Paul has shown them, attempted to show them, we hope they get it, the grand scope of what Jesus has done, and now their redeemed image of God's status within that. Now he's going to pivot. Now he's going to get specific. And he's going to choose a pain point in their lives. He's going to now sort of drill down into a blind spot. And it's not their fault. The cult, this is a cultural blind spot that they have. And we have blind spots as well, correct? So... This is the place that Paul is now applying in attempting to free them up that's going to take us right into the letter of Philemon, to Philemon that uh, Pastor Dave and Colton are going to take us through for the next three weeks. 
It, starts, it sounds a little obtuse at first, so stay with me. Is that okay? We're almost done. He continues in Colossians 3, 9, 11 to start scratching at that blind spot. Since you've taken off your old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, here there is now no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. When I read a letter of Paul, there's lots of those phrases where my mind checks out. Beepity-bop-bop-boop, sounds great. I don't have a clue what he's talking about. So, let's go back and read that again. But now with that grand scope and that renewed, redeemed role that they have as image bearers. Since you've taken off your old self and put on the new self, since you've been taken out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God, this new self being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator, their image-bearing status. Here now, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What's he getting at? He's putting his finger on something. He's raising the issue of who is us and who is them? As they move forward in and live in their God-given roles as image bearer of God, then it means there's no longer us's and them's in the kingdom of God. Now, when they hear that, okay, those Colossians 3, 9 through 11, he says, uh, Gentile and Jew. They get, okay, differences in religion, where we came from to where we are. We get that. We understand that. Barbarian, Scythian, differences in nationality. We're from all kinds of different cultures. Okay, they get that. They understand that. But when Paul says there's no difference between slave or free, it simply bounces off their ears. It's a nonsensical statement. They don't know what he's talking about. Why? We need to understand this before we can finish. We're almost there. You okay? All right. We have to get into their culture a little bit and compare it to ours. Their culture and our culture share a similarity in its stratifications. At its simplest, we all get that there's the uber-rich, whether you believe they should be taxed differently or not. We can disagree and disagree. But we certainly get there's a very wealthy and a whole stratification of financial statuses in our culture. The same was true throughout the Roman Empire. But who was at the top? Only about 10% of the population in the Roman Empire were actually Roman citizens. And that 10% could take full advantages, full advantage of the their legal system and their financial system. So this, it was pretty tilted toward benefiting them. So they occupied the upper 10%. Then the other 90% were scattered in there. Now, in their culture, 
There was no disagreement whatsoever. Everyone knew who was at the bottom. They didn't even get a percentile. They were at zero, at ground level, bottom of the pyramid. It was slaves. Slaves. We have to touch on that uncomfortable subject to be prepared for the next week. First century slavery system was a bit different than in our American history. Just as evil. Probably defines evil best in the world, slavery. But what's striking is, in their slavery system, there was just no ethnic or racial component to it. Anyone could be a slave. So again, both systems evil, but theirs ironically did not discriminate. The catalyst for becoming a slave in the first century in the Roman Empire was being on the wrong side, the losing side of a battle or war. The losers were included in the spoils of that violent takeover and those losers became things, not humans, things. Now, also their culture and our culture, there's an infrastructure, things get done. The Roman Empire is vast and complicated. Our infrastructure is vast. How do things get done in our day-to-day -day life? What does everything run on? It's still the availability of uh, relatively cheap energy, fossil fuels and electricity, kind of runs our system, correct? First century society, their infrastructure was slaves. It was a lot of cheap labor. Cheap is a bad word. Slave labor, the way their system ran behind the scenes was slaves, people who had been redefined as things. And what ran the whole mechanism of their infrastructure? Again, the organic fuel on which the whole system ran. Again, slaves. Now to the point. Paul says to his fellow believers that not only are they the recipients of their reclaimed image of God's status, because of what Jesus has done and accomplished. But now there's no stratification. There's no us's and them's within the kingdom of God, including slaves. Even on hearing it again, it's still hitting on deaf ears with the cultural blindness. And you could see them talking to themselves and to each other. Wait, is Paul talking about those minions behind the scene that get everything done and we can sell like sheep or cattle or wineskins? Yes, them. Paul wants these new believers to understand how thoroughly Jesus has altered reality. Now in the kingdom of Jesus, there's no us and them. And the best way to grasp their own roles as image bearers because he desperately, passionately wants to them to capture what Jesus has given them. Their very roles, their redeemed roles as image, of, image bearers of God within a redeemed creation. He's asking them to see that in each other, but not just in each other, 
in who they think of as the least of each other. In other words, the very mirror he's asking them to gaze in to see their own image of bearing status is the face of a slave. And Paul is going to be using this teaching technique in his brilliant and brief letter to Philemon, which Dave and Colton is going to walk us through for the next three weeks. Oh yeah, one last point. The name of that runaway slave that Paul writes about to Philemon? Onesimus. He actually delivered the letter to Philemon's house. Amen. Hey, buddy. Pray with me. God, as we think about the story of this letter and the incredible truth that the hand delivery of it is in the hands of a runaway slave in danger of a capital punishment. We think about the invitation to be a part of this new kingdom. We can hardly help but jump ahead and think about our own divisive world and think about our own argumentative and hateful culture in which we live. And that all of those things are still true. That you created the world to be good. And you paid the price to redeem and recreate that world. And in between, you invited us to leave the dominion of darkness and become a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, and to be image bearers in our own world and in our own culture. So much so that you looked at those disciples and said, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Is it true of us? Are we those kind of image bearers? Are we standing in stark contrast? Forgive us when we argue and fight, when we respond to others out of arrogance. Would you remind us that you've called us to be image bearers, to be ambassadors of reconciliation to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And as we make this journey through this compelling letter that's going to get so personal, it's going to get down into the vivid, vivid details of a little house church. And Paul's going to ask, live differently. Don't be the same. Don't be ordinary. Don't do the normal thing. Do something that is completely otherworldly. God, would you speak to our hearts about what that would mean, how you're inviting us to this reality? Don't let us conform to the pattern of this world, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Speak in these closing moments as we respond to your word, as we sing again the powerful, powerful words. Would you do work in each of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. 
And everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.